The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Right now, I want to bring in uh, Danny Blanchflower, professor of economics at Dartmouth College, uh, has a lot of experience watching UK politics and the potential effects of these new political developments on the economy. And Danny, we've already heard from some people that the more turmoil there is here and the more uncertainty around Brexit, the slower growth will be for the United Kingdom. Do you agree? Does this out, uh, outcome of the election lower growth prospects for England. No, I'm not sure that it does. I think what it does is it lowers the prospect of a very hard Brexit in the sense that it weakens um, Theresa May's bargaining position uh, at a time when the UK economy is growing really slowly. In, in fact, it's actually the slowest growing G7 country and the slowest growing country in, in the EU 28. And I think what it does compared to, say, yesterday, is it raises the power of what they call the Remainers, because May is, is trying to form a government, which looks like she probably is, with an agreement with the Ulster Unionists, but that's a very fragile coalition. Um, and Anna Subri, an example, an ex-Tory minister, Tory MP, has said May has to consider her position. We're not going to go along with a hard Brexit. So I think in some sense the markets think, you know, steady as you go. I think it takes away the prospect of something idiotic happening, hence the markets are probably right to think um, steady she goes. Well, uh, Danny, uh, do you think these are the same people that were able to uh, predict that Britain would vote to remain in the European Union? <laughs> yeah, I, I know. I mean, I think, I think the polling was, was equally, and the last three elections we've had in the UK, the polling wasn't really right, although YouGov seemed to have called it pretty right. I think the thing this time, I'm not sure it's exactly the answer to your question, Pim, but um, the re interesting thing this time was the exit polls had it exactly right. Um, I mean, the, 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 the reality is that the polling moved dramatically. Um, this was a very terrible campaign led by May. She started out with a 22-point lead in, on May the 7th. What do you think, what do you think uh, is the reason or reasons for the precipitous decline of Theresa May's fortunes in the campaign? Well, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think one of the big things is the economy. So the economy has slowed, and for the first time in the last three months, real wages started to fall again. So economic factors, I think that the, um, that the fact that she called an election after seven times saying that she wouldn't, and she campaigned horribly, um, 
uh, Corbyn actually was conducting um, um, campaigns everywhere and was having thousands of people showing up, and Theresa May basically wouldn't speak to anybody. And so she wasn't really speaking to the people, and that became obvious. And then I think the final straw was actually the, 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 the bombings in Manchester and London, and it was clear that when she was the Home Secretary, she actually fired 20,000 policemen, and the police have made it clear that in some ways she was responsible. I'm not saying she was, but people have argued that that happened. So in a sense, you call this election, you say it's an election about me, strong and stable, um, and it was quite clear she was none of those things. And in the end, she ended up as being weak and unstable. So, uh, Danny, just moving away from the the Brexit in particular, you were saying that the UK is the slowest growing economy among the G7 uh, nations. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of heading that direction before Brexit, right? I mean, this wasn't entirely an outcome of that well, vote, think, right? Yeah, I, no, of course. I mean, obviously, the story has been that the um, exchange rate fell dramatically. Um, it, it picked up a bit. But what we're seeing is, is two two things that happened. The British public unexpectedly borrowed like mad and continued to dissave. So that was a really big that was a really big problem. And the other problem has been that as a result of the fall in the exchange rate, inflation starts to tick up. So wage growth remaining about two, now inflation's at three, probably going to rise more. So that so that that is something that's really happened post Brexit. The Bank of England acted after business confidence collapsed. But my suspicion is that, you know, we're going to see some more slowing going. So you were right. There was some slowing. The economy picked up. But in the last three months, we've seen bad stuff. I mean, 0.2% annual, uh, 0.2 growth in Q1 was a disaster. All right. Well, we're going to leave it there. But I want to thank you very much, Danny Blanchflower, professor of economics, Dartmouth College. Well, the head of the United Kingdom is struggling to salvage her political life. Uh, And yet markets are just chugging along just fine. Nobody seems to be too worried uh, who is trading bonds and stocks. Doug Sioka, CEO and partner of Kvar Capital. I want to bring you in. Uh, Doug is based in Leewood, Kansas. And Doug, can you just give me some perspective? What will it take to shake this market out of its seemingly unshakable complacency? Yeah, thank you, Lisa. That is the question. I mean, today, certainly, the market is absorbing, not deflecting this news. And even immediately after the first exit poll last night, um, the the, the true safety risk-off trades like gold didn't rally. Pound and euro currencies weakened a touch, but nothing substantive, nothing near the Brexit lows of a year ago. And if anything, maybe the prospect of a softer Brexit is less destabilizing. And, And the general heightened level of ambiguity keeps central banks engaged. And we've got a BOE meeting next week. We have the ECB meeting, ECB meeting last week. We have the Fed, of course, that is going to come out with a press conference after their rate decision on the 14th. So I think you're right. It, 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 it's got a lot of investors wondering what has to happen for the market to experience more than a fleeting adverse impact from some of this heightened global tension or one of these geopolitical events. Great question. Hey, hey Doug, can we, I want to ask you, what, what makes stocks go up and down? Well, I mean, gen- 
certainly to me. I mean, four things, right, Tim, historically, you have to have earnings growth. You've got to have some dividend and income component to the stock ownership proposition, perhaps some inflation, and then sentiment, right, whether or not there will be a multiple expansion or contraction. And I think a portfolio manager has to ascertain the influence of these outside events on investor attitudes, and that's the basis of assessing that sentiment and and, and its input in the calculation of expected returns. Sorry, go ahead. I beg your pardon. I think it's a continuum, right? The better the underlying sentiment, the more the optimism, the bigger the benefit of the doubt, the more likely multiples expand, and then prices go up. And, you know, the equal and opposite impact exists if there is weaker sentiment. And that Trump trade is the best example. I mean, he had a positive outlook on the prospects of a pro-business presidency, but now, right, instead of debating functional fiscal policy, we're dissecting things like conversations in the intelligence community, whether President Trump is or isn't going to invoke executive privilege. Stocks are maintaining a bid despite, at best, neutral and sentiment, and mostly that's on the heels of what was a really strong earnings quarter in Q1 and some considerable financial engineering. But for the broad market to push forward, for stocks to go higher, we need more than the apathy that Lisa mentioned to emanate from some of these geopolitical events. Uh, Doug, j- just quick, if, I, if you are able to produce nine and a quarter percent returns on an annual basis for your customers, you'd be a hero, correct? Correct. Okay. So the S&P 500 is up nine and a quarter percent this year. Why wouldn't people just take the money off the table and wait? Yeah, I, I think that is, is absolutely a strong consideration other than, right, you're still talking about a look-back period where, you know, not only returns do returns have to be even better than that to catch up with what historically markets have been able to produce, but I think that fear of missing out is very strong. These animal spirits that have pulled forward maybe some of the next or the latter part of this year's gains are still represented, and you do get, even, and I hate to call this fleeting, but it just was a little bit off the radar, things like this. Dodd-Frank dilution that took place yesterday, you get the idea of how much better things could possibly be. So that is keeping people engaged as opposed to just taking profits and sitting the rest of the year out. Doug, I have to wonder, you know, are we really observing complacency or are we really just simply witnessing the effects of $1.2 trillion of asset purchases by the Bank of Japan and the European Central Bank? I mean, yes, the Fed has stopped its asset purchases, uh, stopped expanding its balance sheet, I should say, but they uh, are being offset quite dramatically by other central banks. Yeah, I think there's there's a, there's a strong undercurrent, Lisa. I think that it's it's buoying prices, but at the same time, prices within the absence of of, of corroboration of that um, of that sponsorship make at these levels the prospect of of a of a swift destabilizing higher. So you could say, yeah, we like the process. This money's coming in. It's coming off the sidelines. There's been a lot of idle cash, not just internationally, but domestically on the sidelines. If it doesn't get that reinforcement as it enters the market, this is one of our big issues with the big passive trade that's been on for the last 18 months, then that's going to be the first money that leaves. So that might be the first step, but it's not enough of a consistent um, march toward uh, allowing these prices to continue in that fashion. Well, so then my question is, we do have some small hints that the Bank of Japan, the ECB, are starting to prepare how they're going to unwind some of this stimulus. What do they have to do or what could they do that would potentially derail this certain complacency that we've been talking about? Yeah, I mean, they're floating all of these trial balloons, and what they have to do is going to be described as very delicately as they move down that path. We actually are now, given Draghi's outlook, 
you could make the case that we are on a globalized, globally synchronized monetary policy tightening, but its implementation is going to be so delicate and not unlike the Fed saying, hey, at some point we're going to have to begin to work down this balance sheet. Yeah, we're not going to reinvest some of the maturing proceeds of these bonds. These are trial balloons that are being floated, not unlike polling that is taking place politically, to understand the reactivity function of the market based on that job owning. Yeah, we, and know, how well the, we know how well the political <laughs> yeah. polling has worked out. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, the market will always move in advance of the Fed, if they, or I'm sorry, not just the Fed, of any of the central banks, if it feels like their intentions are sincere. But when you look at our U.S. bond market as a great example, the Fed has raised rates three times in this, in this, this, this regime shift, right, so to speak, from being um, very accommodative to flat to now tightening. And the bond market has rallied. The bond market has even rallied since the Fed has talked about working down the balance sheet. So we've seen this massive curve flattening because the, even though the short end is coming up, there's not a lot of inflation in the market, which puts the Fed in a very difficult position. But the bond market will not necessarily have its moves dictated by the Fed. They may corroborate and enhance a direction that the market has already predetermined or established as the proper path. How's this for inflation in the equity market, Doug, that Tesla is now valued greater than BMW. Yeah. I mean, come on. I mean, this is the market that we live in, and no one is, I mean, it's like the emperor has no clothes. You can keep making money in it, I guess, but that's a hope and a dream. It's not based on anything factual. It's not. I mean, and certainly in Tesla, as a specific example, is very aspirational in nature. Certainly the way they are commandeering attention and the way that their innovation is in, in exploded, their multiple, and people's interest in aligning with them, the fact that they named their new car the 3 to take on this preeminence that the BMW 3 had at that point in time, just to support your example, yes, I, I, without making a, a comparison of the two companies on a, on a valuation basis, I do think the aspirational nature of the market that has been so um, pronounced in the growth areas is something that could end up having a comeuppance that, um, again, if you're looking at just the general landscape, having some balance right. in the portfolio and not being too heavily one side. Well, we've uh, got to leave it here. I want to thank you very much, uh, Doug Sioka. He is the chief executive officer and the partner at Kavar Capital Partners based in Leewood, Kansas. Well, let's turn our attention now to Apple and its new iPhone. We have John Butler. He is a senior telecom analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He covers the services and equipment business, and he can be followed on Twitter at John underscore Butler 25. All right, John underscore Butler 25. What's this about Apple's new iPhone? And it's not going to be able to take advantage of all those new high speed links that mobile carriers are offering. Well, it all goes into, down to the core, if you will, of what's inside the iPhone. So uh, Qualcomm is one of the main chip suppliers to the smartphone industry, and they make what's called the modem. It's that chip that talks to the network and receives information data back from the network and on the, ultimately onto the screen of your phone. And Apple... Uh, dual sources. They get chips from Qualcomm and from Intel. Qualcomm is way ahead of Intel in terms of the download speeds it can support on the phone, up to a gigabit per second or a billion ones and zeros per second 
of information over the phone. And Intel's running at about half that rate. And so what uh, Apple typically does is they'll build the phones, they'll throttle down that Qualcomm chip to be on par with the Intel chip. So it levels the playing field. All iPhone users are equal under that equation. And so the concern is that maybe this could spill over and impact sales of the iPhone 8. I say no way. I just don't see it. Because in our day-to-day lives, Lisa, you look like you want to ask well, me a yeah, question. Well, yeah, I'm just, I'm, con- <laughs> I'm confused care. because I think a lot of people are using their phones more and more. I see it everywhere I go for streaming movies or TV shows or YouTube videos and all of these other applications that are better when you have higher speed networks. Absolutely true. But I'll offer this. You can measure the download speeds on your phone with an app from the FCC and the highest rate that I get in New York City is 55 megabits per second. So one twentieth of that gigabit speed so, we're talking about. So I, I think I think the news is getting ahead of itself here. I don't think people will care or frankly even notice the difference. And the other thing I'd say is once networks get fully loaded, they get crowded with people, those theoretical download speeds go right out the window. You don't really get that gigabit per second rate that you might get in the lab with the single user on the network. So practically speaking, speeds are moving up and to the right, but they're not moving at the rate that the marketers want you to believe. John, what what should we take away from the fact that Qualcomm has a better, faster chip than Intel? And why is Apple even bothering to use the Intel chips? Why don't they just get more Qualcomm chips? I know they're in litigation, but why don't they just get the real better chip? Well, number one, they are in litigation and they're very unhappy partners right now. So that sets up a bit of a risk. But Apple is known to always dual source, which is a very smart thing. Um because anything can happen with chip makers. We've seen earthquakes in Japan really derail a lot of vendors, not just Apple. Well, why not get uh, Intel to make a faster chip? Well, Intel's trying to make a faster chip, and they're actually running behind, which is what fueled this news story uh, that came out on Bloomberg about um, Intel basically being late to the game with a gigabit per second chip. My argument, I go back to the fact that when you're talking speeds that high, gigabit per second, if you cut it in half, I don't think people are going to notice or care. I just don't. So what's Apple's new iPhone going to offer them that's going to be so terrific that it will offset the inevitably snarky counter ads that you're going to get from Samsung (laughs) saying, well, we're fast and we've got secure, or actually Apple got better security probably, but saying like, we've got the up, you know, up and coming speed. You can count on the ads. Yes. I'll say oh, that, I'm Lisa, sure. For sure. But the one thing I'll say is Apple typically lags all its competitors on hardware specs. That's not where they play. They play in the ecosystem and it's very sticky. It's very hard for someone who's an Apple user to move to Android number one, but there's real appeal there. You know, they continue, for example, to evolve Apple Pay. So now they have peer to peer payments similar to Venmo. Uh, That's coming with iOS 11. Apple Music is increasingly moving beyond music into video. Um, And just the ecosystem in general is very broad and very strong. And and that's where I think that's Apple's wheelhouse, really. That's where they they 
far exceed their competitors. John, I want to get your thoughts on what's going on at Verizon Communications. Uh, the stock is down about 13% so far this year. It trades at about $46.25. Uh, this is a stock that last year, same time, was 54 bucks. So now you're 54 bucks. you're down to 46 You're still getting your 5% dividend. What is the strategy at Verizon and why are they laying off, what, 2,100 people? Yeah, well, the layoffs are related to the Yahoo, merging Yahoo and AOL. There's a lot of redundant jobs there in engineering and marketing and so forth. So that was expected. Uh, I think broadly taking a step back from that merger and looking at where Verizon's headed, they don't have as well-defined a strategy as AT&T, for example, which is making some really bold moves into content. Uh, they have a really bright future there, in my view. I mean, there's a lot of risk they need to execute, but I think they made the right moves. Verizon just seems to be foundering a little bit. They're trying to find the right next step. They've committed hard on 5G, which is, I think, a good move. Yeah. But the margins lie in content. That's my bet. So, Thank you so much for joining us. John Butler, always wonderful speaking with you. John Butler is Senior Telecom Services and Equipment Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. And he joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio talking about how the speed just might not matter since you actually can't get it practically, uh, certainly not in any crowded place. Well, I think of the, uh, at one point, almost 20% bounce in the shares of this company in the past three days after it came out that it's looking to potentially go private, whether from the Nordstrom family or some private equity firms that are supposedly, uh, quote, kicking the tires on Nordstrom right now. Jenna Gianelli is a high-yield analyst focusing on the retail and gaming industries at Citigroup and uh, has some good perspective just generally about the retail industry and what could make Nordstrom attractive or not and what kind of debt could end up getting piled on. Jenna, I want to start with the value here. How much of Nordstrom is a retail story and how much is a real estate story? Hi, guys. Well, thanks for having me on today. I appreciate it. Um, I think you, you know, you jumped into right of what the heart of the big differentiating points is here. You know, most retailers that we look at in our universe, whether it's high yield or even in high grade, they don't own a lot of their real estate. But for those that do, it's been a huge resource, resource in terms of enhancing liquidity, whether from asset sales, engaging in sale leasebacks, um, or in some cases, securing lower cost of capital. So we've seen that, you know, in our coverage universe, JCPenney, Toys R Us, uh, Neiman Marcus, Bonton stores. Um, but broadly, I mean, these are few and far between. So in the case of Nordstrom, um, you know, we, we don't cover, but we actually applied the same methodology that we used in our Neiman Marcus uh, real estate valuation. You know, we came up with an estimate that it could be worth around, you know, $6 billion. $6 billion. Um, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of different estimates out there, but just to give context, that's almost the size of their market cap. So, $6 billion, um, in other words, is the value of the real estate, you're saying? Right, exactly, of the combination of the owned and ground leased real estate that they have, you know, assuming certain cap rates, um, lease values per square foot, et cetera, making some assumptions, but um, applying, again, the same methodology that we've seen in other high-yield retailers, um, it comes out to a really large number relative to the size of their market cap. So, 
um, you know, when you're thinking about multiples in the space, potential purchase prices, for those that do own their own real estate, it has to be factored in relative to just thinking about traditional multiples and, and what those might, you know, be. We've seen that those those that own do command a higher multiple. So with, with that real estate value, help Nordstrom go private without having to incur the kind of debt loads that we've seen weigh down the Jimborees of the world and the other LBO uh, targets that have been uh, going out of business or going bankrupt, I should say, uh, right. as a result. Yeah, I mean, look, that's a good question. I think what we've seen more likely is is just the ability to use that real estate. Maybe, you know, you could, again, uh, engage in asset sales, sell leasebacks to shore up liquidity ahead of time so you don't have to take on as much leverage um, in that, you know, financing transaction. Another way that it's used is just really to secure lower cost of capital. So you could do, uh, you know, a propco type facility or you could do just a real estate term loan where you get, um, you know, JCPenney is a great example. They use their real estate. Uh, to you know, get pretty attractive rates relative to what it could have been um, on on their uh, term loan um, because of the value of the real estate that they own. So I think it would be maybe you know more in the form of that, again, securing lower cost of financing, but certainly allows them um, would you know real estate allows them to um, manage that leverage a little bit more than those that don't. And I think you know you compared it to a Jimboree or some of the other stress retailers. Um, they didn't necessarily start out with that, you know, type of high leverage, but not owning some of their real estate has certainly, um, you know, I say limited flexibility, but it, it, it certainly it enhances liquidity for those that do. Uh, Jenna, I wonder if you could just make it a little bit simpler. It can how much debt could could Nordstrom take on given their current financial situation? About fifteen billion in sales. They did net right. of about five hundred and forty million. They got free cash flow of over seven hundred and seventy million. Uh, only 2.7 on the balance sheet, 2.7 right. billion, right? And a market cap of seven and a half billion. Right, exactly. So, I mean, look, how much leverage can you put on a retailer today? Um, there's a lot of hesitation in the market to finance these transactions. There's more skepticism uh, around new retail deals coming to market. But I will say, and even for retail deals that we've seen come recently within the last month or so, you can still put um, five to six times leverage on a retailer that's in the right category and has the right story and, you know, the, the potential to delever from wherever their, their starting point is. So, you know, what would that imply to your point? I mean, Nordstrom has about $2.7 billion of gross debt right now. If they were to lever up to that five to six um, times leverage context, that would assume, you know, roughly about $7 billion total net debt um, on the existing, you know, capital structure. So it's manageable. I mean, I think when you look at where yields are in the high yield space for a single B type realer with that type of leverage in the five times, you're looking at six to seven percent. It depends right. also what you're willing to pay. Well, we got to leave it there. But very interesting. Giving us these details is Jenna Gianelli, the high yield analyst for Citibank. We're talking about Nordstrom. The shares up about three and a quarter percent right now. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? 
which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.